Eco Interviews listeners. As you know, the Eco Interviews is where we amplify the voices of eco warriors from across the world. My name is Fiona Martin, and I started the Eco Interviews as a way to speak to people who are involved in helping tackle the climate crisis we find ourselves in. Let's talk about the harmful effects of big industry and development. We know about pollution, air pollution, water pollution, ground contamination, and more. And development, whether residential or commercial, can have harmful, lasting effects for wildlife, wetlands, and people. But there are laws and regulations in place to stop this, right? What happens when big industry and developers don't follow those laws? It's up to organizations like the South Carolina Environmental Law Project to take these polluters and developers to court and defend our natural resources and environment. In this episode, we're speaking with Amy Armstrong, Executive Director and General Counsel for the South Carolina Environmental Law Project, also known as SCALP. Amy started working for SCALP in September 2002 after receiving a competitive two-year fellowship from Equal Justice Works, formerly the National Association of Public Interest Law. Once her fellowship ended, she became a staff attorney at SCALP, a position she held for over eight years until the untimely death of SCALP's founder, Jimmy Chandler. Amy graduated from the University of South Carolina in May 2002 with a Juris Doctor and Master's in Earth and Environmental Resource Management. She's a Liberty Fellow and also served as a Municipal Court Judge for the City of Georgetown. Skelp has done, and continues to do, amazing work in defense of the environment. In this podcast, we talk about the three coal-fired power plants in South Carolina whose water pollution permits lapsed almost a decade ago, development plans for important wetlands in the Lowcountry, and an absurd plan for an ecotourism resort on Bay Point Island in Beaufort County, South Carolina. Thank goodness for people like Amy Armstrong and Skelp for defending our environment against big industry and developers. I hope you enjoy this episode and learn as much as I did. Welcome to the Eco Interviews. Today we are with Amy Armstrong, who is the Executive Director and General Counsel for the South Carolina Environmental Law Project. So welcome, Amy. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm excited to speak to you about the work that um, SCELP does, but let's start out with you introducing yourself what you're all about, and then if you can tell us a little bit more about the South Carolina, excuse me, South Carolina Environmental Law Project and what you guys do. Sure, um, I'm glad to. So I'm um, I'm an attorney, uh, uh, obviously, and I've been working with the South Carolina Environmental Law Project or SCALP um, for 18 years. We've been around for approximately 33 years, and. We started really, um, we called it a project because we really didn't, at the time, um, Jimmy Chandler, my predecessor, started Skelp. It was really to address a few um, environmental problems that he saw that were arising from newly enacted laws. I mean, this is back, you know, in the 80s when some of our first environmental laws um, on the federal and certainly the state level were beginning to be implemented. Um, to protect our natural resources. We were realizing that we weren't protecting them and we were putting um, you know, people at risk, development in unsafe places. We were destroying really the golden, uh, golden egg, that the goose that laid the golden egg <laughs> um, by destroying and impacting our um, salt marsh ecosystem and our, you know, not just the natural environment that 
I think makes South Carolina really special. So that's how Scout um, started. And we've really, we've grown, you know, then it was just Jimmy for 11 years by himself as the only um, employee of Scalp, And since then we've grown to um, five attorneys and four support staff. Uh, we're in um, green, we've got a Greenville office, a Mount Pleasant office, and I'm here in our Georgetown um, home office. And really what we, what we do, sometimes I, I like to tell like my niece and nephews when they were younger, I'd tell them that your aunt is a lawyer for the trees and the birds and the bees and the wildlife that don't have a voice for themselves and can't speak for themselves. And sometimes, sometimes they need lawyers in the courtroom to defend them. And so that's um, really the role we play. And we do it by representing uh, citizens groups, community groups, environmental organizations, a lot of times ad hoc groups that form around a particular um, projects that are going to impact their communities. Um, and so we provide pro bono legal services uh, through on issues throughout the state of South Carolina. Um, I worked as a staff attorney at Skelp for eight years and then when Jimmy Chandler, my predecessor and Skelp's founder, passed away in 2010, I took over as the executive director. Wow. Sounds like you guys are doing some great work, and I look forward to diving into some of the cases in particular. Um, you yourself are an attorney, but I see here that you also have an educational history in biology, correct? Mm -hmm. And you worked for SC Department of Natural Resources? I did. Um, I worked for, for DNR for several years after, after college and got really connected with some amazing people doing work in the state, um, working with the, the Heritage Trust System, which is really the highest designation that our state has for protected lands. And so um, it was really um, my experiences working at DNR really um, guided my decision to go to law school. I was working with an endangered population of uh, birds called red cockaded woodpeckers around the state, and it was a lot of fun. Um, I got in a car accident when I was working at DNR, and that left me um, a paraplegic, and so I use a wheelchair, manual wheelchair now, mm -hmm. and I had to think of a different way to continue to do conservation work that wouldn't involve me being out in the woods chasing birds around all day. And so I decided that if I could take, you know, my passion and desire to protect and conserve um, are the things that I love about South Carolina, the wildlife, the birds, um, vegetation, trees, just the outdoors, um, that I could maybe find a different way to do that um, aside from being you know, on the ground that I could use legal tools. And so that's when I decided to go to law school. Wow. That is, that is an amazing story. And, um, you know, I, I didn't know all that background. So thank you for sharing that with us. I was, I definitely thought it was interesting that you had the science background and then moved into law. So it was that combination of your uh, environmental experience and then bringing it into a legal setting. So fantastic. Um, Scalp is at the forefront of protecting us from polluters and bad actors. So most of us, well, I'm going to say me, I can't speak for everyone, but we, we kind of float through life thinking that we are protected from dangerous things. We don't think the, the items on the shelf are here to poison us or that the 
factory down the street is is doing anything of any harm because of course there's laws and regulations in place to protect us from that but in reality i think there's a lot of reg- or i'm finding out there's regulations and aren't enforced and so um i found on your website uh a something that you're involved in three of south carolina's coal-fired power plants are operating on outdated water pollution permits and not just like a year outdated. Um, the one in cross, the cross generating station expired in August 2010. The Winya generating station expired in July 2011. And the Watery Steam Station, which is about uh, 10 miles downriver from me, because I'm on the Watery, expired on uh, December 2012. So, how are these plants um, allowed to operate in that way? And how does Skelp step in to uh, rectify the issue? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to. I want to get to that. I want first. I want to just kind of echo what you said about thinking that that we've got this agencies that are there protecting us. I, I mean, there's there are there's a lot of pressure coming from industry, from developers, um, on the on the regulatory agencies. Um, they're they're not always following the rules. They're the they're not always. The rules aren't always enforced properly. They may not be applied properly, and so there's a and, and then there are also a lot of loopholes, which is really what's kind of led to the situation with the generating plants. And so I think it's really you know, that's the role that Skelp plays is that we've got we need to make sure that our environmental laws are properly implemented and enforced for the protection of the public health and welfare. And so with specifically with respect to those three coal-fired plant permits, they're called NPDES or National Pollution Discharge Elimination System permits. They're permits under the Clean Water Act. And so they allow these generating facilities to discharge a certain amount of pollutants into the water. Now in 2015, there were, new standards passed. They're called, excuse me, um, effluent limitation guidelines that really um, impose higher standards on, I'm sorry. That's okay. They have higher standards on what, what has to be in or what can be in that effluent in the discharge. And so these facilities are operating under old permits that don't have these new standards in place Mm -hmm. and how they're allowed to do it is as long as you apply for a renewal permit within a certain period of time, then you're allowed to continue acting under the expired permit until DHEC makes a decision on the renewal. The thing is DHEC has been sitting on these renewals for between eight and 10 years, allowing these three generating plants to continue discharging at polluting levels that they wouldn't otherwise be allowed to under the laws as they exist today. Mm-hmm. And so our case is about making DHEC, it's called a, we're, we're asking for what we call a mandamus, and you're asking the court to basically order DHEC to make a decision on these three permits. One way or another, either they need to deny them, they need to issue them with these higher standards in place, um, but they've got to act on them. They can't just let them languish, which is what's been happening for the past eight to 10 years. And I, the reason I'm really 
excited about this particular case is that you were know, working with Sierra Club, we're representing Sierra Club in this state court action. And um, it's part of Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign. And I think that that's, to me, particularly, you know, an exciting campaign because all of us recognize that climate change is something that we've got to all take action on now. We cannot wait. Um, I read your website to see you know, some of the things, that, the changes that you've personally made. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think we all need to take action. And, you know, something that Skelp is excited about taking action on is, you know, ultimately what we want is these coal-fired plants to, you know, dis- discontinue their use. We need to move away from fossil fuels and we need to move towards renewables and you, your discussion with Alan Hancock uh, was a great one on, on renewables and how we're moving to you know, increase the use of things like solar in South Carolina. But it's not until we, until we say goodbye to these old, dirty um, coal plants that we're going to really be able to get there. And so I think it's, it's to me, um, inspiring to be working with Sierra Club on, on, as, on part of their Beyond Coal campaign and trying to, um, at a minimum, get these plants to be discharging less and be do, polluting less into our state waters, but ultimately um, moving away from coal-fired plants is um, something that I think is very important for us to be doing in the state. Yeah, 100%. Um, and, and it's I guess it's surprising just as a layperson that there's um, a lack of accountability on the behalf of DHEC. And so is the only uh, insight or oversight and accountability come from firms like yourself, basically like flagging it that you guys have been sitting on this for 10 years. That's the only way to tackle these issues. Right. Well, I mean, we, we, yes, I think the short answer is yes. And we did try uh, to talk to DHEC and ask them, you know, try, we try to nudge them along, you know, we, these permits are expired, you know, we'd really like you to take action. And we, we did, we made our best efforts to move the needle with DHEC um, before filing a lawsuit. I mean, that's sort of the last resort, but the, at the end of the day, if no action is being taken by DHEC, the really the only remedy that we have is to go through the judicial system and seek relief. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, again, grateful for the Sierra Club and for Scalp to be able to do those sorts of things on behalf of, let's say, the people of South Carolina, because if they're running at above, you know, allowed pollution levels, everyone downriver is affected, correct? Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the whole reason why these new effluent limitation guidelines were implemented in 2015 is to protect give more protection to, to, to people, to our waterways, um, and minimizing pollution. Mm-hmm. And something we talked about with our conversation with Alan Hancock was that many of the communities downriver from these plants are disadvantaged communities, mm-hmm. um, many who use the waterways um, for even for fishing. And I know even as a child growing up here, we were given limits on how many fish we could take from the river. And it wasn't a fish conservation reason. It was because it was, you know, too dangerous to eat that much fish. And that's pretty wild to think about. So. I mean, I'm glad you raised that because it brings up an important point. South Carolina, historically, we've placed 
polluting industry, whether it's a coal-fired plant or a steel mill or um, a, a, um, a chemical plant, all of these industries have historically been placed in communities that are lower, low-income communities, communities of color. They have historically borne the brunt of pollution in this state. Uh, landfills, we've, we fought uh, a number of landfills in the state where they're really hoisted on communities that are disenfranchised, that don't have the ability to fight for themselves. And it's, it's you know, we're beyond time to stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Shine a light on it and, and make some change. It's, it, it's, it seems to be something that, that goes throughout history. I know um, when I lived in Britain, I, I realized that um, there's a commonality with the big cities there that the working class neighborhoods were on the East End. And I you know, did a little Googling, why are working class communities on the East End of the city? So you have London, you have the East Enders and Glasgow East End. And then the more affluent part of the city was the West End. It was because during the Industrial Revolution, when they built the um, factories, the smoke would generally blow over the East End and the more affluent people would settle to the West so they wouldn't experience that. So even the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution kicked off that sort of pattern, unfortunately. Um, so let's let's pivot a little bit and talk about residential development or just development in general. Um, Scalp has filed a request for a contested case hearing with the Administrative Law Court on behalf of the Sierra Club and the South Carolina Wildlife Federation. And you're also joined by Charleston Waterkeeper, represented by the South Car- excuse me, the Southern Environmental Law Center, and challenging the state environmental agency's authorization of a 3,000-acre mixed-use development in Charleston's West, West Ashley. Um, and that one stands to threaten the health and the livability of the community as it would allow the permanent destruction of over 200 acres of wetlands. So can you talk to us about how this development would impact wetlands and why it's important to make the effort to protect wetlands in South Carolina and uh, across the world as well? Mm-hmm. Sure. So wetlands are wetlands serve a lot of functions and values. I mean, there's some obvious ones, like they provide wildlife habitat. Um, That's where um, a lot of uh, amphibian species uh, breed. They, they need that for their, you know, their habitat. And it's also the important functions of basically they're called sponges and they suck up water mm-hmm. and they hold water. And so they provide what we think of as, as flood buffering or flood attenuation uh, to be able to hold in and store, store water. Um, they, so one of the things that they do when we've got a storm event, for example, is they um, water will run off into the wetlands and they will hold and trap that. Now, when you start filling in wetlands, then the water that normally would go to where the wetlands are, because they're in lower-lying areas, once you build in those areas, the water still wants to go there, except a lot of times there's homes there that have Mm -hmm. been um, built on top of the wetlands. So they'll fill in a wetland and build a home on it. And it's exactly that phenomenon that has resulted in houses in the West Ashley area where this long, we call it long Savannah project. There are houses in that West Ashley area that have experienced that exact fate. They've been built in these floodplains in wetland areas 
and water still wants to go to these low-lying areas except there's a house there and then they end up experiencing repeated flooding and there have been dozens of houses in the West Ashley area adjacent to where this Long Savannah project is located that have been bought out now with taxpayer dollars because of the you know, they've been flooded you know three four five times um, and so what we a lot of our Skelts work is focused on how do we site development where where's a good place to site it where can we site it so that we know people are going to be safe and not put in harm's way in the future we know um, that NOAA maps that have looked at predictions of sea level rise um, and and how that's going to change our, our ecosystem, our landscape. We know that we're going to see more inundation in these low-lying areas over time. And we also know that that's those low air, lower areas are where the marsh is going to ultimately want to migrate. And so we need to leave some space for the impacts of sea level rise, essentially, so that we're able to maintain habitat for the variety of species that form the basis of our food chain. And so a project like Long Savannah, it's, it is on 3,000 acres, is the entire project site. Um, the development isn't on the whole site, um, but there are, um, there are over 700 acres of wetlands on this property, and the developers proposing to fill in approximately 140 acres of wetlands and then excavate about 70 acres of wetlands on the project site. And so those wetlands, 200, roughly 210 acres of wetlands will be completely lost and destroyed. Either they're gonna be converted to um, stormwater detention areas or they're going to have structures they're going to be filled in and have structures built on them and so you're going to have a complete loss of over 200 acres and that's a, a very large and significant number of wetland impacts it's um it's i would call it you know, really atypical for the kinds of um wetland permits that we see coming down i've been doing this for 18 years you see a lot of different things over time um, this is a really, this one is the jarring amount of wetland impacts. And it's particularly troublesome because it's in this West Ashley area of, of town that's subject to repeated flooding. We already know that. Um, the city of Charleston engaged in a process with the historic Charleston Foundation called Dutch Dialogues. Um, a lot of people, you know, any, anyone in the Charleston area is going to, will have heard about the Dutch Dialogues. It was a pretty major undertaking to uh, look at ways that we can live with water, mm -hmm. um, as the Dutch have done, and taking some of the lessons that they've learned and, and, and rethinking how we, basically rethinking how we live with water. And one of the things that they looked at was the West Ashley area, and they specifically noted that this these kind of fill and build activities when we fill in floodplains and wetland areas and build on top of them, those are the, we're, we're just putting people at risk and we need to stop doing that because those are the areas where the water wants to go and we need to have more areas like that instead of less. And so um, when we looked at, you know, the Dutch dialogues recommendations, when we um, look at the history of flooding in 
you know, and specifically in West Ashley, it's happening in Charleston. It's really something that, that, you know, we're, I'm seeing, you know, more in Georgetown, all around the, you know, the state, we're seeing more flooding impacts. Um, and, and so really what we want to see happen is that we want developments like Long Savannah to be done in a way where you're, you're avoiding those really significant wetland destruction components of the project. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, the double whammy of um, rising sea level, which Charleston is suffering from greatly just because it's on the coast, right? And and that doesn't seem to be, that's not something we can reverse right away and then filling in the wetlands. Um, the whole state has been seeing flooding issues. I know the Midlands, we got, we got our share in October 2015 with that flood. And um, I think sometimes people see it as just, there's just a lot of water. So there was flooding because we had four straight days of rain, but really, you know, you've paved over things, you've developed things, you've removed the natural systems that would handle floods and inundation. Uh, it is mind boggling that, that, that development still wants to go in that direction. I mean, uh, can you, is there any thoughts on that? Why do we, why do we keep trying to do this? Or is it, you know, firms like yourself that are going to have to stand up and be like, come on guys, it's 2020. Why are we still doing this? <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, this, this particular project is, is interesting because when they, it's got a long history and it's been, uh, it was, it was, it's been proposed for many years and on the table for quite a long time. Um, when they first, uh, when they first proposed the project, there were only a couple hundred acres of wetlands identified. Um, the, the U S army Corps of engineers is, are the, is the agency that determines the extent of wetlands on a property. And they were, they had to go back, the developer had to go back in and get a new, wetlands determination because they only are valid for five years. And when they went back in, they found um, 700 acres of additional wetlands. And so um, when the project was initially conceived, the impacts were not going to be so substantial. Um, But the, the project in the face of new information that identified a lot more wetlands didn't change that significantly. And, and, because of because they're still having you know quite a, a large amount of wetland impacts, mm-hmm. um, you know, I can't you know speak for the developer. I've read a lot of the you know their you know their arguments, I guess, about why that they they want to do it. That and they've made arguments about the you know financial feasibility of doing the project um, with eliminating some of the wetland impacts. And of course, they say it's not feasible. And that's an argument that we hear, you know, routinely. Um, There's a plan developed and they have to do it this way and they can't do it any other way. And this is the only way that they can do it. And I, um, I mean, we're, we're going to go to court and we'll be arguing about, you know, whether they really can or or not. Um, They've, there is part of Charleston County Park and Recreation Commission is going to have a park on the property. It's a very, I mean, it's a very large site. And so that's a component of it. And I know that um, that's one of the, you know, the other arguments that we expect them to make that there's a benefit because there's going to be a public park. But I think we would respond that, that the loss of such a significant amount of wetland storage and um, wildlife habitat is not just, is not worth, um, is not worth that that kind of a risk. 
Yeah, we've talked a little bit about other wetland habitats on this podcast. We spoke to um, Ollie Marais, who spoke about the carbon sequestration power of mangroves and those wetlands. Uh, ecosystems around the world. Uh, we spoke a little bit about the East Coast wetlands with um, David Harper. And then we talked about the introduction, reintroduction of beavers to um, the UK to actually help with their recreation of wetlands because they're experiencing flooding problems. So, uh, you know, if you look at it, the destruction of wetlands, you know, fill, fill, fill and build, it, the long-term ramifications are just so, so much. And so I wish success. What's the next stage in, in this development in regards to scalp? So we, we filed, basically we think of it as an appeal or a challenge to the DHEC, the state agency authorizations that allowed the fill in the first place. And so there's a, a set of procedures that happens next. We, um, we tell the court what facts we're going to present and what, our, what the legal basis is for the case. Um, and then we'll go through what we call discovery, where we um, ask for documents from DHEC, that the permitting agency and the developer. Um, we ask them to provide us you know, expert reports and um, any analyses, pro formas, things that they've, they've done um, to justify the project. We'll want to take depositions um, from expert witnesses and witnesses that know about the project and the permitting process. So it's basically getting ready for a trial. And then at some point, the administrative law judge will schedule a hearing date and we'll go into Columbia and put our, put up our case. It probably, um, you know, won't definitely won't be in 2020, but, Mm -hmm. um, but it'll probably be coming up in the next, you know, next year or so. And just for, for those that are really familiar with the Charleston area, I think, it might just be worth mentioning that these basins that we're talking about, and these are the projects on the Church Creek and the Rantals Creek. Um, they're within those basins and adjacent to those creeks and ultimately discharging out into the Stono River. So when we talk about and think about what that those areas look like, I mean, you've got some creek areas, some um, bottomland hardwood areas. Um, we've got some in, some photographs that we've taken of the site and it's really, I mean, it's really quite, you know, a lovely place. And there's also, you know, standing water in some of these, you know, wetland areas. So it's, um, when you see it, it's, it's really quite remarkable what, what the actual habitat looks like. And thinking about that being lost is, um, is pretty, you know, alarming. Yeah, I'd love to share photos um, either that you have or that I can find of that area so that our listeners who aren't in that area can understand exactly what the wetlands of low country look like because they are very unique. I've never really seen anything like it and it's something that we certainly need to fight to preserve. (laughs) Yeah, we're glad to get some of those. Maybe we can put at the end of this. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And speaking about our wetlands, it's not just residential development that might be a threat to the wetlands down the low country. We're also facing threats from tourism development because the coast of South Carolina is so loved by so many. Um, So from your website, but also I just listened to the most recent Public Concern podcast, um, which had previous Eco Interviews guests, Alan Hancock, Rebecca Haynes, and Queen Quet on it. And um, the... Scalp is supporting the Gullah Geechee Fishing Association in a fight 
in fighting a proposal, a proposed eco resort on Bay Point Island. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us about Bay Point Island and um, what this fight is about? What this eco tourism development is uh, is proposing? Sure, and I think this you know, the Bay Point issue really you know overlaps in a lot of ways with Long Savannah. Uh, challenge because a lot of our work is really aimed at keeping people and structures out of harm's way. Mm-hmm. Um, that we we want to not put people in dangerous locations. We know where some of those dangerous locations are, and we should make land wise land use decisions that don't put people structures at risk and sacrifice wildlife habitats. So. That's certainly the case with um, Long Savannah and Bay Point. Bay Point um, is, a, is a little bit different because Long Savannah, that project, there's a lot of land that can be developed without impacting wetlands because it's such a huge site. Mm-hmm. Bay Point is a lot different. It's a, it's a barrier island. And in South Carolina, we have a lot of barrier islands and they're called barrier islands because they're really a barrier or a buffer between the ocean and and some and the the, the marsh, the estuarine system, and the land, um, the land behind it, and so they serve our like our, our first defense in um, when we've got storm events or you know major nor'easters and things like that. Um, a lot of them, if you look at them, are very you know narrow. Some of them are a lot bigger. Um, Bay Point is at the mouth of Port Royal Sound in Beaufort County. Um, it is, it's really amazing to see this piece of land, um, in person. It, I went down there about two weeks ago and circumnavigated the island. It's pretty small. It's about maybe 400 acres. Um, and much of it is, you know, it's, it's very deep. It's, it's a sandy landmass, basically. Mm-hmm. It's got some, some trees and some forested areas on it but it's very susceptible to um, the forces of the, of the inlets on either side of it, as well as the ocean and the river on the backside. So it's completely surrounded by water. It's, it's inaccessible by vehicle. There's no bridge. The only way you can get out there is, um, is by boat. And when you, when you, ride around the island, you see a lot of how dynamic it is. The island's really in flux. It's, um, it's eroding in a lot of places where you see trees and vegetation that are falling into the creek on the backside and trees falling, uh, laying on the ocean, on the beach, on the ocean front side. Um, there is one house that's out on the island and it's now pretty much inundated, um, it's completely inundated by water at high tide and it's starting to you know, crumble and fall you know, onto the ocean amidst all these trees. So it's, it's very erosional in some places. It's got a lot of loss of vegetation. It's clearly a really, you know, dynamic piece of shifting sand really. Um, and there's, there's a developer uh, called Six Senses. They're out of Thailand and they own a handful of luxury resorts around the world, and they are proposing an eco, they are calling it an eco resort, but it's really a high-end luxury resort. Um, It would be about 50 villas, 
uh, along with you know restaurants and you know sh- shops and wellness centers and spas, um, a pretty you know exclusive resort that you're you know. I don't know about you. I probably wouldn't be going there at a thousand dollars or so a night. So it's a very, um, a very exclusive high end plan that they have for this, for Bay Point. The problems are that one, this area has been used historically by the Gullah Geechee people, like the fishermen that we're representing with the Gullah Geechee Fishing Association. Um, it's been used historically by that those that community and the the nation to um, fish to harvest shellfish to fish from the banks and the waters around Bay Point and so there's a lot of cultural significance in that respect. Um, they've been using it for many generations, uh, so a development obviously an eco resort on in in this cultural area would really be a significant change to those uses. The other big problem is, of course, they they would need septic systems and a lot of infrastructure to support the development, the resort, and in in an area that's highly susceptible to impacts from rising sea level, from hurricanes, from storm events, um, what we see you know, all around the coast of South Carolina is our nearly every single beach in the state is, ero- is erosional. Um, a lot of you know, people that live on the coast and you know, many people in Columbia know that constantly communities are asking the state for contributions to, for renourishment or federal funds for renourishing beaches because our beaches are so are, are so largely erosional that you're needing to constantly maintain them by pumping sand on them. Um, and so this, this isn't no, Bay Point's no exception. Um, and because of its size and its location in Port Royal Sound is particularly susceptible. And so when we think, when I think about, um, you know, siting decisions and, and land use decisions, you, this is exactly the kind of place where you would not want to put any kind of a permanent, of permanent structures, um, where you know that you're going to be putting those structures at risk that probably, you know, have a lifespan of maybe 10 years before you see, you know, them either inundated by sea level or just being destroyed by, you know, one of the many tropical storm or hurricane events that keep you know, that we are, we are seeing on, on pretty much an annual basis. And in South Carolina in 2020, we, you know, it's the, just barely the start and we've already, you know, had our first hurricane. So it's, um, it's really a, a place that needs to be protected, that needs to have those historic and cultural uses maintained. I think it's, you know, obviously you could do eco tourism out there without having structures by taking people by boat for day trips to be able to see and enjoy the, the land um, just adjacent to this uh, to Bay point is another Island called St. Phillips Island. It, and it's a lot larger. I think it's, um, I think it's at least 800 acres. So it's a lot larger than Bay point. It's, it's very forested. It was owned by Ted Turner and he sold it um, at a very 
bar- what we call a bargain price ultimately to DNR. So it's now in state in state hands, which is, I think, where it really makes the most sense to be because it's protected. People can still go out there. They can walk and recreate on the beach. Um, all, all of the beaches in South Carolina that are below mean high water are called public trust property, which means you and I have the right to walk on that public trust property. It's ours. Um, the state's holding it and managing it for us. And, and so I think it's, you know, one of the wonderful things about being a South Carolinian, we have these beautiful beaches in our state. Um, let's keep them, you know, open and not, um, you know, not altered. Uh, and I, lest I forget one of the other important uh, things about Bay Point is uh, Audubon Society has designated the island in its entirety as an important bird area and that it's part of the Atlantic Flyway, and, and we have, um, so when migrat- migratory shorebirds are moving up our coast, it's, they need places where they can stop, they can rest, and they can feed and build up fat stores during their winter migration, and they aren't, they aren't able to do that when there are, there's a lot of human activity, because mm-hmm. human activity, a lot of times, you know, we bring our dogs, um, we bring, you know, there are, you know, you know, raccoons and possums and things like that, that, that come with human development. Cause we've got, you know, food and our trash and all of those things. And so when we, when we start, uh, when we inhabit areas, when we have structures and introduce more, you know, consistent day-to-day regular human activity on our beaches, that is, I know it doesn't, may not seem like it at first blush, but it's very disruptive to birds, to shorebirds that are especially, you know, overwintering and trying to build up those fat stores. And so Bay Point is really significant because it's one of those places. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, we have fewer and fewer of them. And so they become even more the ones that we have that are uninhabited, that can, we can, where we can leave um, wildlife alone um, and leave it relatively undisturbed we need to make sure we've got those places if we're going to, you know, be able to um, help these sh- shorebird species survive. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's also really, you know, important from that respect, even, you know, a limited amount of development, you're still going to have people that are going to be interacting with those, you know, with those birds and wildlife on a, you know, on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I learned is super interesting from that uh, from the Public Concern podcast. Um, first of all, Queen Quet said that the Gullah Geechee don't even consider Bay Point an island, so they kind of laugh when they hear them calling it Bay Point Island because to them it's like you know just a spit out in the ocean. It's it's not an island. And then she, they said looking into the other properties owned by Six Senses, like it, they're average cost per night is like two to three thousand dollars so really who who is this aimed at it's not really aimed at the local population it excludes me as well um and like they said the development that would have to go into this eco resort they had also mentioned that they think it's being dubbed eco resort to get around certain zoning regulations can you talk about that at all 
Right. So um, the, the, the zoning ordinances in, in Beaufort County don't even, wouldn't allow, um, wouldn't allow a development unless it meets the ecotourism definition. And so initially the county said it doesn't concluded that it did not meet that definition. And, and then the developer expended a great amount of money on retaining um, uh, what I would call a, a greenwash group um, to, to advocate for it and call it, say, yes, it is actually an ecotourism. But if you look at the, the facilities that are associated with it, it's, it's not aimed at, at being, you know, what I, you know, what you would think of as designed to engage with nature. It is in a very natural place, but it's got, you know, wellness centers and spas and restaurants and, you know, villas. It's a, it's not really, um, you know, from our perspective, they're just, they're trying to like shoehorn something in that doesn't really fit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a luxury resort. It's not, you know, it's, it's we don't believe it's ecotourism um, in any real, you know, sense of that word other than, you know, some greenwash created, um, you know, definition. Uh, it's, it's been kind of, (laughs) it's been frustrating to see how that's all played out. And so the County reversed its position and now the developer has meets the, um, the zoning ordinance and they just need to get what's called a special use permit to allow the project to go forward. And so we are obviously going to add, are advocating against the issuance of the special use permit. And, and part of our arguments are going to be that this doesn't truly qualify as, as, as ecotourism. Mm -hmm. I mean, there can be a lot of ways that you do ecotourism that, that have like a very, you know, that, that have such a light touch on a property um, and this, you know, this isn't one of them because they're, if you look at the island, they're using all of the, really the, the only area that you could develop on. I mean, there's, there are, are wetlands in the, in, on site, so you can't really develop on those. And I would agree with, you know, Queen Quad. I think it's, you know, I think of it more as a, it's a big, big old sandbar, you know, mm-hmm. not really an island. It's more of, a, it's, it's a big sand, sandy landmass. And so and it's constantly shifting and. So I think, you know, that's interesting to hear her, you know, you repeat what she said about, I don't really think of it as an island because that, that makes some sense. It's not like Hilton Head Island um, or, um, you know, Sullivan's Island or something like that. It's a very narrow, very fragile system. Mm -hmm. And it does, it does beg the question, why are developments even, entertained i guess would be the right question and so that leads us into my next question that in a broader sense generally city count count excuse me city county and state planners see development as a net positive they're making money off it they get you know for building residential neighborhoods i imagine the positive is that you get more tax revenues and if it's a tourism development you're getting tourism money right but right. i mean it sound it really seems like we need a different approach to development if we want to protect sustain and hopefully heal our environment you know resorts that were built 50 years ago you can make the argument that we just didn't know the ramifications environmentally and you know humans are part of the environment it has negative effects on us as well um now in 2020 
I think we should be making the argument that we should know better. So, so what, what do you see as you've worked in this and, and a lot of the work you're doing is development? Do you have suggestions or how would you like to see future development going forward? Well, I mean, I think, you know, one, one way we could begin to address it is that really the, the cost of development doesn't really reflect the, the public cost of that development. But and, and what I mean by that is, sure, there are tax revenues, and that's often the driver. I think you're you know, exactly right that they get approved very often because local governments do see you know, some significant tax revenue come in. The problem is, ultimately, the taxpayers have to pay when development's put in, a, in, a, in an unsafe, risky, dangerous location. I mean, one example I refer will refer back to is you know in West Ashley where we've had to have buyouts of properties that have been repeatedly flooding. I mean that money has to come from somewhere. Um, it, it with respect to Bay Point, what's going to happen when those houses are washed into the ocean and strewn you know throughout Port Royal Sound's pristine waters? Who's on the who's on the hook for cleaning that up? It's not the developer, it's us, the taxpayers. So if the true cost of development um, were reflected in what the developer pays, what you know, people that, actually, that use those um, facilities pay, I mean, that would be one way, but that's not happening right now. It's the, it, it, it ends up, the burden ends up on the taxpayers when we've got situations that either are become hazardous because they are, you know, these properties become inundated, they start falling into the ocean, there's all kinds of marine debris, there's all kinds of pollution, it's, you know, can be dangerous for people that are recreating in the water, when we've got, you know, debris strewn, you know, in our creeks and waterways. And so we don't right now have a way, we aren't adequately accounting for those costs. And I think that if we really did, then maybe we wouldn't have, we wouldn't see these kind of areas being, you know, being developed. But we know that people are willing to pay very large amounts of money to be in very beautiful places. And we have a lot of really beautiful places, but the, 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 it's not the cost benefit analysis really hasn't been done uh, Mm -hmm. to show what the true and the true costs of those developments haven't really been incorporated into the equation. Yes. Yeah. I I wonder what modeling could be done to include those costs. It, it feels like a lot of things we do is very short-sighted, not just mm-hmm. in development, but just a lot of our human actions right now, our purchases, our, our day-to-day is, is what's right in front of our face and without consideration of what happens after use or what happens before it. And so... I don't know how we expand our mind on that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think that there there has been, and I haven't done any of this work, but I've read about it, and there 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 has been done um, a good bit of research on quantifying the value of wetlands of a, okay. a, of an acre of wetlands. So you can put a dollar um, a dollar value on that, and you can actually quantify what its what its value is, and so you take that into account as part of the cost benefit analysis in into the overall equation of of a development project, for example. So there are, there are some ways that you can, you can, you can quantify those kinds of things. Um, we just aren't, we aren't doing it now and we're not taking it in, into account now when we're making these kind of, um, these kind of development decisions. There's, um, you know, there are a lot of, 
uh, I think there's a lot of um, uh, public sentiment that's building around this idea that we need to think about protecting the people that are already living in communities before we make decisions about more, you know, citing more development in areas that are going to be, you know, either are already flood flood prone or will have impacts on existing um, communities. And you know, one of your comments reminded me um, about the Green Diamond Project. I don't remember, I don't know if you remember hearing about it, but it was a proposed development in Richland County in a floodplain. Mm-hmm. And yeah. there was, there, that project had, had, had been proposed for really, I, I think almost decades, because I remember hearing about it when I was in law school in the late 90s. And um, that project ultimately was thwarted. But I saw pictures of that green diamond site after the 2015 floods mm-hmm. and there was a lot of water. I mean, it was, it was filled with water mm-hmm. and it was, you know, to me just a very you know, clear evidence that if we had actually, if that development had gone in there, it would be entirely underwater and we would have had a whole lot more damage than what Columbia and Richland County experienced um, to begin with. And so, um, you know, we can, we can see some of those things, um, now and we should use that to inform and guide the decisions on, you know, how we grow and how we develop and making sure that we're doing it in a way that, that makes sense. That's mm-hmm. going to not put people in harm's way. That's going to protect some of these natural flood buffering functions. It's going to allow, um, wildlife to coexist with, with, you know, human habitation. Yeah, that's great. What what's coming down the docket for Skelp? Anything interesting that you want to tell us about? Um, well, we've got you know, we're we're working on on quite a few issues um, up in the upstate in Greenville. Uh, Michael Corley is spending quite a good bit of time trying to get some good laws established on um, protecting rural landscapes. So mm-hmm. Greenville County the rural parts of Greenville County are under a pretty tremendous threat from, uh, for, of development in mm-hmm. some of these rural landscapes uh, that have, you know, really, you know, agricultural uses and um, have been, you know, larger properties that have got a lot of valuable quality, valuable qualities. And um, we've seen a number of projects that are, really, you know, what I would think of you know, very much the sprawl, when you think of a sprawl project mm-hmm. that's going to, that comes into a very rural area and dramatically alters the landscape. And so wanting to keep some um, rural landscapes protected, that's a big um, issue that we're grappling with in, in the upstate. Um, we're also, we've got a lot of work that is focused on specifically on the beachfront. Uh, that certainly goes to you know siting type um, issues like uh, where and how you build on the beach. Um, we are we're working down on Folly to try and um, prevent um, people from building uh, on beach that was created entirely with renourished sand. Okay. So there, Folly. Is, is one of our very erosional beaches. It's regularly renourished. It's a result of the, um, the jetties. And so there's a lot of federal funds that pay for that renourishment. 
And some of these lots, uh, there was a renourishment last year. And before that renourishment, some of these areas were underwater completely mm. under the ocean. And then the renourishment was brought in. And now there's some, at one, at least one house has been built and we're trying to prevent other houses from being built. Um, but that's another, you know, along the similar lines of what we've been talking about, trying to prevent houses from being built in areas that we know are going to be inundated in the very near term and on folly, really near term, because that beach loses sand so rapidly. Um, we're also working on trying to prevent hard erosion control structures on our beaches, things like groins um, and seawalls has been a big um, part of our work because those structures interfere with the public use of the beach. They also um, interfere with sea turtle nesting. And so we, we have a good bit of work that's um, around those kinds of issues. Um, and we're just, um, you know, we're trying to be available to address needs that, that come up for South Carolinians in, in trying to protect their, um, their communities and, and wildlife habitat. And um, so we're trying to you know, just keep our finger on the pulse. It's a lot, there's a lot going on. Even in the midst of COVID, we had this long Savannah permit, you know, be issued and mm-hmm. uh, a couple others that we're, we've been watching real closely. Um, and we're, we've also been working for about a decade now to protect uh, Captain Sam Spit on Kiowa Island from a, from a proposed 50 home development. It's a situation similar to Bay Point, very dynamic um, piece of land that's been subject to a whole a lot of changes. Um, both Bay Point and, and Captain Sam's have some similarities because they're in what's called the Cobra Zone. It's this coastal barrier, um, coastal barrier, uh, CBR, Resource Act, sorry. <laughs> I'm so used to saying the acronym, um, the words take a little bit to come out. But it's designed, it, that law is set up so that you can't get federal funding for any um, projects, development projects on barrier islands. And mm-hmm. so... Bay Point's one of them, um, Captain Sam's one of them, and what it means is that you don't get federal flood insurance. So um, it's it's another just flag that it's a risky place to build. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've been working on that as well, and that case is up in the Supreme Court right now. Um, so we're we're um, you know we're keeping busy. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like it. I, I was going to ask you about that with the homes that they're trying to build on the renourished sand. How do they get insurance for homes built that way? Well, um, so Folly is is not they're not in in the Cobra Zone. Mm-hmm. Um, those that particular area, so they would qualify for for FEMA for federal flood insurance. Mm-hmm. Wow. So it's a it's a ta- I mean, it's another you know it's a taxpayer subsidy. Mm-hmm. Um, which yeah. <laughs> you think is a, is a pretty big, pretty big problem. Yeah, because you think about, I mean, there are there are, what's the right word? Um, critical people when things flood. Let's say like uh, during Katrina and the horrible flooding in New Orleans, and then you get the flooding on the coast up in Massachusetts, and some people will be like, well. Why, why would you live there if it's going to flood? But if they keep building, that's another, I think that's another like layperson's assumption if something is built somewhere that is safe, 
Uh, mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily the case, as you've highlighted with some of these new um, developments. Yeah. <laughs> building on shaky land. <laughs> For building, real. On shift, building on shifting sands. I, I, you know, I, I, I remember being growing up um, as a kid, going to Sunday school and learning that you aren't supposed to, the, the wise man build his house on the solid rock and the foolish man build his house on the shifting sands uh, mm-hmm. as, a, as a really interesting you know, parable and one that obviously, you know, every would make sense to everybody except for right now it doesn't really make sense that maybe you shouldn't build on shifting sands. And I, um, I think just, you know, on this, on this idea of federal flood insurance and subsidies and, um, kind of circling back to like, you know, at risk properties, we, we know with sea level rise that, that our you know, communities of color and low income communities are the ones that are most at risk. Mm-hmm. And we need, uh, absolutely to spend you know federal dollars and taxpayer dollars to help those communities because they are they're going to need they're going to need our help the, that kind of money i don't think needs to go to people that are able to build you know multi-million dollar houses on on the beaches that that um you know i think we need some major restructuring when it comes to how we're spending you know our our, our fema funds yeah, definitely. You know, you hear that as well. Like, why would the Obamas buy a house on Martha's Vineyard if there's climate change and all that sort of rubbish? But uh, yeah, the people who who have those multi million dollar houses can can pack up and go. Uh, but you know, the rest of us, it's not as simple. Especially if it's you know old family property that you're living on, there needs to be mm-hmm. some sort of reprieve for people who mm-hmm. need help, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so how can, uh, people follow Skelp? Um, so they can follow us on our, um, of course on, on our website, which is just skelp.org. Um, they can follow us on our Facebook account, South, South Carolina Environmental Law Project. Um, we could, they can also follow us on Twitter, um, and at Skelp and, and on Instagram, also, but I'm not sure what our handle is off. I think it's Skelp. S C E L P. And as this the South Carolina thunderstorm is like rolling in hard right now, I'm not sure if the thunder is coming through, but we're about to get washed away. <laughs> so. It's not, but I'm, I'm sending it your way because it was here a couple hours ago and it's, we've got clear blue skies, but it must be moving up towards the Midlands. That's it. It's coming through. Uh, we had similar with the, with the tropical storm Isaias that came through. What was that? Two days ago that came through and we got the bands as well. And hopefully you guys weren't too badly affected by it? Were you guys okay in Georgetown? We had a bunch, we had a bunch of rain, but really very little wind. So we, we stayed pretty safe. That's good. I'm sure yeah. the wetlands helped absorb that water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Amy, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. And um, I look forward to sharing our conversation with our audience. Um, Skelp is doing sounds like fantastic things. I enjoy following what you're doing and you guys are being that voice for those who are not able to speak up. Like you said, the wilderness, the trees, the animals, also, you know, disenfranchised communities that um, need help to defend um, the natural landscapes and environment that they, that they thrive on. And without that, we're all in trouble. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Fiona. I enjoyed it. All right. Thank you, Amy. Have a wonderful rest of the day and have a wonderful vacation as well. All right. Thanks. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye.
Thanks for listening to the Eco Interviews podcast with guest Amy Armstrong of Skelp. Be sure to follow Skelp on social media to keep up with the important work that they are doing. Please consider supporting the Eco Interviews podcast by sharing it with your friends, rating and commenting on Apple Podcasts, and consider a donation by visiting www.eco-interviews.com forward slash podcast. The planet is what we all have in common, and that's worth fighting for.